0: Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Welcome back to another GeoMob podcast. This is the third time that Denise McKenzie has been on the Jermode podcast, and that doesn't count the Christmas Chaos editions, which are something else completely. This is a record, Denise, three times on the podcast. No one has been invited back for a third time. So I could say that we invited you back because you're fantastic, because you're doing interesting stuff, but I'm going to be truthful and say... You're here because your family. You're my sister, and I was in trouble. I was in trouble. Ed and I have recorded the two hundredth episode. Then he pointed out to me that we didn't have episode one nine nine. And so I went, oh, my God. And he said, you've got to sort it out. I can't sort it out. So what did I do? I reached out to my close friend, my sister, and she said, no problem. So here we are. So, Denise, thank you. That's the (laughs) first thing. Um, (laughs) Now. Who is Denise McKenzie? Because she's not the Denise McKenzie that was with us the last time she was talking about the Locust Partnership. This is Denise McKenzie, who's the managing partner of The Place Trust. Um, She's she's done loads and loads of things. She says that she's a strategic advisor, a partnership builder. She's a presenter... um, she's worked in the geospatial community all her life um apart from all of that she's one of my very very best friends i can't think of anybody i'd rather be talking to so denise first of all welcome to the podcast thank you second of all thank you for bailing me out on episode 199
1: anytime
0: (laughs) Uh, i'll take you up on that and now um Start off by telling us a bit about PLACE, because I thought I knew about it, and then I went and did a bit more research and realised it's a really amazing organisation. So, tell us a little bit about PLACE.
1: Thanks, Stephen. Um, so, PLACE, I mean, it is a new type of thing. I think that's what attracted me to becoming involved with it. We, we describe ourselves often as a data institution. Uh, as an organization so we're a not-for-profit entity uh, we're actually a series of entities or a group of entities so we started life as uh, a spin-out of the media network uh, and was rooted in in I think 10 12 years worth of land and property rights uh, and geospatial work that it was funded by Pierre media's uh, foundation Um and so we're a not-for-profit in the US uh, and we're a not-for-profit in the UK. Uh, the part that I'm managing partner of is the Place Trust and that's a data trust. Um, perhaps a little bit of a different sort of data trust than many people would think of. I think that phrase was became a really popular thing during the pandemic, particularly around sharing health data and a lot of the research data that happened in there. But very few of them, um, if any, had a financially sustainable model around them to sort of how you continue to manage and, and keep that data there. So, Place, though, is is something that does uh, have a mission to become a financially sustainable data trust in, in what we do. So, and I think you'll ask me a little bit more about kind of how we, we get to all of that. But, uh, you know, in essence, we were created to try and help fix some of the data sovereignty issues that governments experience around the world now. Um, you know, if I think back to when I first started in geospatial, the authoritative place to go and get a map was the government. You know, that was the the only place that you could go and do that, and that's literally 20 years ago. Uh, so fast forward to now, and that's a very different situation. You have many governments around the world responsible for the health of their population, the management of response to climate, etc desperately in need of mapping data, but actually not being the owners of much of the, the mapping data that now is collected and gathered about their own countries. Uh, so, Place was really set up to see, well, how could you um, how could you fix that inequity? Uh, how could you fix that and, and sort of restore some of that sovereignty to government whilst also trying to address that challenge that I know many, many organisations experience, which is still trying to get hold of the data that you need uh, to to be able to understand a country, and that you could be a commercial entity there, you could be a not-for-profit organisation, you could be a research entity, but everybody still experiences those problems these days trying to get hold of the data. So the organisation is about trying to, I guess, address the whole raft of those different issues, and we can kind of get more into the the ducks, nuts and bolts of that. Okay,
0: so just occurred to me, we're not talking about the UK. We're not talking about France or the Netherlands, or are we?
1: No, we're not at the moment, I think would be the the, the the way I would respond to that. Our focus is to try and, I guess, initially fix those issues more in the developing world. What I would say about the way place has been built, though, and the structure that we have is that in the future of place, that's not something that would be excluded. Um, so, as an organisation, I think what we are about is trying to to see how we can help uh, fix some of the the challenges we've still got around some of the data sharing um but equally underpinned i guess in helping to fix some of the issues around responsible use of data and some of the concerns that much of the world's population now has about how data is used um and particularly location data in that
0: so before we get into the detail is place a charity is it a not-for-profit is it something else
1: so at the moment it is a charity in the united states so it's a 501c3 entity um not-for-profit entity in in the united states in the uk we are a registered not-for-profit organization with its charity status pending so we are in the middle of our application with the charities commission at the moment
0: so that obviously leads to the question where's the money come from (laughs) still from Omidar, or
1: uh so at this point, I mean, we're, we're less than three years old as an organization. So you definitely squarely still put us in startup um, kind of yeah. realm, I think, at this point. So we are initially philanthropically funded. Uh, so we've got a, a mixture of organizations. So um, big thank you to some of the original funding from a media foundation. But equally, we've had funding from the Global Innovation Fund, uh, from Dovetail, and from a variety of others, as well as amazing support from um, the sort of not for profit programs that are places like AWS. WS, etc., to sort of support with services uh, and activities in that too. So that's where we are now. That said, I talked to you about a financially sustainable model. So you know we can get into the details more about how that works, but the long-term aim actually is to have the data trust data being available both for commercial use as well as for uh, non-commercial use within that. And commercial use will attract a level of commercial fee uh, that would come into the charity. And the, the goal in the long run is for, for that fee to help um, make the organisation financially sustainable that would enable us to, to sort of continue working um, and going back and refreshing data on a regular basis in the different countries countries we work with
0: okay okay so i i can see some challenges there because you've got um, everybody who wants data for nothing and encouraging the commercial sector to actually fund this model will be a challenge i suspect but
1: uh, I, I i so you might be surprised actually um you know i think there has been a definite, you know, the open data movement has 100% created, I think, an expectation that a lot of data is made available for free. I think what you'll also find too, particularly with commercial organizations, is that that's process is often hard to, to get sort of service level agreements out of that you can rely on to build your commercial products. You get very little agency over the quality uh, and the frequency and the update and the, the accessibility of, of, of that data because it is being made available for free. Um, and so, actually, in the long run, it can end up costing more or be not worth your time as a commercial yeah. uh, entity to, to use data in that way. Um, so, I think, actually, when we talk to a lot of those, and, you know, the ones I'm talking about here are often the very big platforms, yeah. to them, they actually, I could tell you, all of them have all gone, wow actually, if you guys could really get like this geography, this geography and this geography, we're very interested. Um, because for them, equally, it's not just the getting access to it openly or otherwise, it's equally just getting access to it at all. Uh, for some of these countries, just the administration of working with each individual country, which has got a different arrangement and a different agreement, etc., in there, taking that headache away from um, any organisation can be worth quite a bit Um, In in payment. So I think it's not one or the other. I think it's about trying to find the right solution for for the situation that we need.
0: And we know that lots of big organisations have tried to use OpenStreetMap and have just fallen with the complexities of ODBL, with the complexities of what they can and can't do and how they can add value. So I get that. I get that. Um, So just I know we're going to talk about some use cases in a bit, but to be clear we're we're talking about the countries that have been less well mapped in the past, aren't we? yeah, is that a fair way of describing it without
1: absolutely, absolutely. Using-
0: prejudicial language or anything?
1: Uh, No, not at all. I mean, you're talking about, we started in the continent of Africa. um, And so our very first uh, pilot area that we started working with with, was Cote d'Ivoire in in Abidjan, um, where there was a huge need for the type of data we had, particularly around understanding flooding situations across the city. I mean, this is one of those things when you come from a country, say like the UK or Australia or America, you know, a big flood somewhere, And actually, you see it splashed across the news everywhere. You know, it's amazing, you know, incredible kind of, you know, scenes. Um, It wasn't until I was working with Cote d'Ivoire and we got photos being sent to us on WhatsApp from the government officials that I saw the scale of the flooding that happens through city streets on an annual basis uh, in that city. And I had no idea, no idea. On an annual basis? On an annual basis um and so you know what i realized is that all of these major natural disasters are happening absolutely everywhere they're not just happening here and actually in these sorts of cities your buildings are in no way set up to be able to cope with these um these phenomena so the the need for the data is huge uh in in these places but their capacity and ability to, to get hold of it is is difficult um so so yeah definitely trying to look at the those sorts of places, and and it's sort of for us, it's been Africa to start with, um, and some of the nations there, but we very quickly moved into the Caribbean, and the place model works very nicely in a in a small island state uh, where it is often very very hard to to get hold of the the, the level of detail that you need, satellite imagery whilst you have it. Is often not detailed enough, it's not uh, low resolution and often in the islands you've got a lot of cloud so that makes satellite even more difficult to work with um, and we're hopefully about to head into the Pacific for similar reasons um, at the okay. moment. So
0: would it be fair to say that you're working in cities and small island states rather than trying to cover whole parts of the African continent at yes. the moment?
1: Yeah, and I think again that goes back to, to a comment I made earlier about uh, choosing the right tool for the job that you need to do. You know, for a large lot of the agricultural, large uh, grasslands type areas and so forth, satellite imagery works works perfectly fine um, for what you're doing. But a lot of what we do is is that sort of five to centimeter, five to ten centimeter accurate um, type data, and so that's what you really need when you're looking at a very densely populated urban space where it's just very difficult to get the satellite data into that
0: okay so i was looking at your mission statement um i love mission statements i mean you know i i think it's a a great exercise to try and sum your organization up in sort of 15, 20 words. Your mission statement says, our mission is to map the urban world in ultra-high resolution and make these maps open, reliable, and accessible. So I thought let's start by unpicking that because Mm -hmm. almost every word in that prompts a question. So let's start with which parts of the urban world are you focused on? Yeah,
1: so definitely those ones that haven't yet been mapped well. Uh, so really, we try and target uh, geographies that uh, we know, you know, perhaps haven't had decent uh, aerial photography flown in sort of ten years. Um, we, as I said, definitely focused in in Africa to start with. Um, but what we realised with some of the first uh, island states we've done, like the Turks and Caicos, is that particularly from a climate impact perspective, uh, some of these islands in the world at the moment are just in desperate, desperate need of, of data that is this detailed at the moment. Um, you know, in the case of say Tuvalu, which we're hopeful is going to be the next uh, place that we're, we are in in the Pacific, you know, it's one of the island five islands in the world most likely to go underwater first as a result of, sea level rise. Wow. Um, and so their interest in Having place involved would be to have both the aerial photography and the street view imagery to help them build a digital twin that not only allows them to to some level of mitigation, response, etc. for their population, but equally as a uh, sadly a preservation tool for their island and, and their culture uh, in the long run. So oh, it's, that's that's chilling, isn't it? It uh, really it does. It actually when you sort of see. That that scale of impact um, that that's horrifying. But that then equally, you realise too when you look at the emissions um, impact of the world. That's in urban spaces. That's in very big urban spaces. And so actually, that need from a climate perspective to focus on urban is huge at the moment. Um, because whilst those little guys, those guys on their their island out in the Pacific they're being impacted by what's happening in those urban spaces in other parts of the world too. So, so for us, that urban in, um, focus is really, really critical at the moment to get an understanding of.
0: Okay, so what when you talk about ultra-high resolution, what does that mean in practice? Because you just mentioned um, sort of two and a half centimetre, I think you said? Five.
1: Five, Five. is what you go for. Um, Five
0: centimetre... Um. Aerial. That's aerial, not that's not satellite.
1: No, that's not satellite. So that's aerial. So we, um, we're. What I would say is we're agnostic, I guess, to the technology, if you like, that that we use to be able to do that. I mean, aerial you need because it gets below the cloud um, to be able to to do that. But whether that's a drone or a plane depends on the size of the geography that that you're going to do. You know, doing a, a Tuvalu uh, makes sense with a drone uh, for the the size and scale of the island. Um, Flying in Johannesburg, though, in South Africa, you'd be there for most of the year if you're trying to kind of cover that with a drone. So it's for us, it's more about, I guess, the spec. Um, of, of what it is that you need and making sure that that's right. Um, the other thing about PLACE is that we are very much about partnerships. So whilst we have got staff that are CAA, FAA certified, able to capture and, and fly out with our own drones um, and our own street equipment to be able to do that, the long-term aim with PLACE is actually to build partnerships with organisations that are inside the countries we're working with and to, to create an annual um, contract of work that we can pay for to be able to do that. So even when we go in with staff, uh, we will do capacity building, we'll train anybody that wants to come along and have a go with the drone, we'll do all of that sort of work on the ground to try and foster um, the, the in-country capability too because we'd rather push money uh, into the country we're working for and uh, for working with and to be able to c- encourage some of that economic growth um, than to be extractive um, in, in what we're doing with them.
0: So you're the the idea the idea is to refresh the data on an annual basis.
1: Yes, that is the the, the ultimate ga- um, aim. So, and you mentioned that you're
0: you're flying five centimeter, whether it's with a drone or with a plane. And you've yeah. also mentioned Street View a couple of times. So, I'm guessing you've got some snazzy kit that you put on the top of cars. and yeah. Drive through.
1: Not just cars, but we have a, the snazzy one that I like even more is our one that goes on a backpack. Um, so what that allows you to do then is to be able to walk slum areas where the street's width might not be large enough to put a car in there as well. Um, so depending on where you are, you, you can kind of do both. Um, I'd say a learning that we've had out of the last uh, two years, though, is that whilst we can capture five centimetre, often actually on occasion that size of that data can be too big um, to actually usefully work with in a lot of the places that we're in too, so I would say we go anywhere between five and twenty, uh, sort of depending on where we are, what the need is, etc. Um, within the space, so there is a bit of conversation in there about what's what's going to work best because at the end of the day, you have to be able to work with the data that you're so you're doing. <laughs> you've you
0: flown five, 10 centimeter data. You've driven the streets or you've walked the streets and you've got street view type imagery. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that the product that you hand over to the local government or do you convert that into digital data?
1: So we so first of all with the street one important factor that we do is we don't hand any data to anybody that's not de-identified. Uh, so we remove faces and we take number plates and everything off, and that happens before anything goes to the government um, in, in that situation. Um, basically, well, so it's a mixture. I would say that that our aim is actually just to have the data, um, so not even create an auto mosaic, but actually to just kind of have the data, and we will give that copy to to the government. Um, depending on the government then, and this is where our place community of members becomes really critical at this point and why we go through a trusted process of of uh, KYC or know your customer, or know your client type processes and background checks before we admit any organisation to a member user of, of place data. Um, because depending on the country there's some capacity or there's no capacity um, to be able to do something with that data there's a number of countries that have uh software licenses for major gis software companies um but they've never had the real data to be able to put in them (laughs) you know so it's kind of like as always kind of like it's like having a beautiful set of the best building tools you can possibly imagine and then no materials by which to to build with you really need both um and so, what I would say is that uh, we have definitely had situations where we've helped. Um, so uh, Turks and Caicos, for example, we, we have actually helped with sort of creation of the the DEM and the the author um, mosaic, etc., for the country. Um, in that situation, our goal, though, would be that that that's something we'd love to see our community members really being the the sort of entities that can do that. Um, and so, we want to be able to have. A really great thriving membership of mixture of organizations of research and commercial entities that a government can feel comfortable and confident reaching out to for for potentially assistance with the services going forwards.
0: Right so you've said that you've been going for about three years if I remember that correctly how much data how many cities per month per year um
1: uh, look, I'd say in the early stages, we focused less on the numbers, more on the learning. Uh, so, a lot of this has been about proving more the process in the first instance. So, there's about six cities worth of uh, data sitting in the trust at the moment from a mixture of different places. Um, in terms of numbers and cadence of what we've got next, I mean, in the continent of Africa alone, there are 40 active conversations with governments that are beginning to look at what dates and and when things will get signed to be able to to do. So, next year could be a very busy year um, in looking at what we're doing. Um, Likewise, with the Caribbean, there's about another six six cities in that. And we're also not just focused, I guess, um, these days on the the capital city as well, what we're also recognising as there is as much need sometimes in the secondary and tertiary cities in some of these geographies that are growing even faster, um, but equally have, you know, some of the metrics, particularly for um, some of the development agencies that they're looking for is is how do we help people that are living on less than $5 a day? Um, and many of those people are living in a, in a secondary in and in a tertiary city. So they're sort of hugely growing slum areas, but people with, with access to sort of nothing. So a quite important part of the world's population to be understanding better uh, and knowing how to support from services perspective.
0: So, we've talked about how you keep the data current in terms of hopefully creating the capacity that the country can or the city can recapture the data. Um, But I'm guessing that at some stage that needs to be turned into a, a vector data set for a lot of uses. You know, you need streets, you need buildings, you need all that stuff. And so... And that screams at me. OpenStreetMap.
1: Um, I think depends on, on from a government perspective. Um, I have a huge amount of respect for OpenStreetMap and the information that's in there. I would say that governments don't still don't own that, um, you know. And if I was being really honest, and I put my own my old government hat back on, um, when I worked in government for twelve years, I think I would have struggled to use that type of. Um, data for major government decisions or financial decisions in there. I think that there's a hard, it's a difficult thing for a lot of governments to do. And that's not picking on it from a technical capability perspective. That's simply a kind of control of the provenance of uh, and and so forth um, in there. And I think that's always been one of the tensions that's difficult about a volunteer created uh, data set like that for governments, you know, who have got a, Judiciary responsibility for what they're doing and uh, legal responsibilities, that can be difficult to, to rely on a piece of data that they haven't got a, you know, sovereign ownership of themselves um, and I, with doing that.
0: And I guess that today, um, that 10 years ago, if you had a load of aerial imagery that you'd captured, you needed a load of volunteers to sit simply drawing lines over the aerial imagery, and then you needed another load of volunteers on the ground to say that is such and such a street, that's such and such a building. Um, Today, a lot of that technology, you know, is automated, you know, and you can extract the features from the imagery. I mean, you have to mosaic the imagery, extract the features, and then you can use the street view, to attribute the features um, and to enrich the data set. So I guess it's a lot easier to do this now without having to recruit a squad of volunteers that you can't actually control and QA and everything.
1: Yeah, well, and I think also you have to remember as well that there's been a fairly big investment program across particularly, say, Take Africa um, to to put a lot of people through um, university these days as well. So I think you've got a very different skill set to draw from um, that you can employ as well now. So I think governments have got a lot more options now uh, in terms of what they can have coming in-house in, in that sense. But I think the biggest game changer, honestly, is the the machine learning capabilities. That automated feature detection now that you can simply kind of extract. If you look at, say, the... Uh, uh, 12 fundamental data themes that the UN agreed upon sort of 8, 10 years ago now about what the, what the geospatial layers should be fundamentally for a country. The reality is of a type of data like ours with that level of detail now, you can extrapolate sort of 10 of those. Uh, with some sort of draft machine learning, um, you can pull out your hydro, you can pull out your building footprints, you can pull out your, um, you know, vegetation layers and so forth for an urban space. Like it's quite phenomenal what you can quickly do. Um, the tools I've seen recently, too, even I was surprised watching the marriage of the the aerial photography and the street view capability. The reality is that with some of the tools now, you can literally be accurately drawing the height of a street lamp. Um, inside the GIS and then just go I just want to put now add that to a feature layer Um, you know now create a street assets you know and you're literally just someone sitting at a desk measure add that point measure draw that little line all done you know now we've got a thing and it's all attributed with as much information as I can see in the image right now sure you might go out and do some field work but that immediately suddenly makes the government department so much more efficient because they can really go, oh, well, we, we think we've got enough information about that now. We actually don't need to check that one, but we should go and check the quality of that and we should go and have a look at this. Um, so that's phenomenal. And I mean, I think between that and things like um, I saw another one of our members use the aerial photography and because of how detailed it is, be able to identify all the buildings with air air conditioning units on the top of them and not only identify that they were air conditioning units but measure the size of them and then do an estimation of how much energy you might it might draw which means you could then um, match that up with weather models and say okay so if the temperature goes above x the electricity draw is likely to be this then we know that there's like you know, uh, weak spots in the energy grid here because of the density of the number of this type of, of air conditioning units. I mean...
0: <laughs> and you're deducing all of that from aerial imagery. That's- all
1: of that from aerial imagery. That's what I mean by... And I think that's... For us, that's, that's one of those really interesting things about this particular data type is that it's so rich in what it can tell you and what it can be used for. And so for that reason, whilst we want to make it as frictionlessly openly available to those that should access to, have access to it, we are very conscious that actually just throwing it out to, to sort of be used as open data and freely available to absolutely anybody might not be the most responsible thing um, to be being doing. And so in place we have a phrase that we use of trying to be as open as we can be but as closed as we need to be in order to be responsible with what we're doing.
0: Okay, so I want to get into... Um, an example of one of the early countries you've worked in. But just before I do, um, who's paying what in this in this process? Because you're funding some of it, but I'm guessing you're not funding all of it.
1: No, we fund all of it. You so fund all of it? We fund all of it at this point. So um, maybe it probably used for me to just take you through a partnership then. So like the country of Cote d'Ivoire. So... Um, the way it works is we literally start with a conversation. So it's it's telling them about where we are as place and wanting to build a partnership with them. That usually has roughly three reactions um, from a government at that point. Mostly they look at you and go that can't be true. Like, I must have misheard what I've just said because you're telling me you're going to do all this for free. Um, And we're like, no, no, that's really the case. And then they think there's a catch. And the funniest I ever heard was someone turned around to us and said, I've worked out what it is. You must be the CIA. Um, (laughs) You're doing all this for free. (laughs) Which we're like, no, no, but interesting conclusion. So we build up, and it's very much based on trust, um, you know, and that's an interesting thing with with governments and technology organisations. It's interesting to see how... Um, how much scepticism and how much concern there is from a lot of governments about technology organisations. So it's building that relationship to start with. And once the government's in agreement for us to come in and work, there's an MOU and there's a governmental licence agreement that gets put in place at that stage. What we ask The only thing we ask of the government in return is the assistance to do the the in-country stuff that's hard. So, the getting flight permits or they're getting customs clearance through um, for equipment to come into the country might be the recommendation of a company to work with um, that that they know and like on the ground. Um, It will be often the provision of a government vehicle uh, to do the street view capture because, particularly from a visibility and an ethical behaviour perspective, it's important that that's visible to the citizens. Um, That this is a a government sanctioned project of work doing data collection. Uh, And it's often the provision of space to train um, people and do that participation and maybe some uh, accommodation uh, inside there for per place staff. But it's not a financial um, cash payment to us or cash payment to the government. And that's really important part of what we do because that takes away any suggestion of corruption or bribery or any of those sorts of things that can sometimes really mar some of those international projects that you're working with in different parts of the world. So once we've done the data collection uh, we also do all the QA and QC with the government. So if the government has said to us there's an important installation over here we don't want captured uh, we go yep that's fine Uh, so we make sure that that's not there so they'll check it all. Once we finish that, all the root intellectual property goes to the government. So that stays in country, sovereignly owned, et cetera. And what we get in return in the same license document is a licensed copy to go into the place trust in the UK um, at that point. So that's the thing that I'm the managing partner of is the build-out of of that side of things. Um, What we then do is that, and we've just been doing sort of slowly, quietly doing that this year, is to start to build the trusted member community Uh, that is around that trust that can use that data. So, any organisation in good standing in the world can apply to become a place member. At the moment, the uh, membership fee is a grand total of 500 US dollars, although we'd love it if organisations want to donate more. (laughs) It's always helpful. (laughs) Um, But what that gives you access to is everything in the trust. So, as a research entity or a non-commercial user, you can use everything inside that at that point. Um, If you want to use the data in there for, to create a commercial product, then there is a commercial license fee on top of that. And that is slightly variable, um, depending on where you are in the world and what geography that you're talking about within that. Um, one of the really important things to us about that place community, as we call them with the members, is that they're part of the um, feedback and involvement of how the organisation runs. So we have three working groups uh, that members participate in and the governments are involved in those as well, and they look at the governance for us as an organisation. So they look at our ethics principles and how we hold members to account for responsible use. They look at the pricing and licensing structures to make sure that we've got the right money uh, being set Um, fees being set so that we can make the organisation financially sustainable Uh, and we've got a technical working group that everyone can participate in that helps provide advice on the platform delivery and the data collection and and all of these aspects that move in there as well so it's meant to have a lot of participation.
0: So medium to long term you're hoping that Commercial licensing will provide the funding to keep capturing data and yeah. build, building the data set. That's and, it. and presumably, if in country they recapture after 12 months. That also goes into the trust.
1: Yes, so we'd pay for that. We'd pay for that again. So that's the goal is to have the, the sort of money coming through and and what have you. That will do that. So and I mean, look, that's the, also the long term goal as well because we're conscious that in order to get to that point, you do have to have a certain amount, and we know that there is some very key geographies um, that are quite important to sort of have in the trust uh, that are the ones that have got a lot of commercial interest. But you know the the important thing about those geographies is that they will hopefully be popular enough that they help us fund the areas that perhaps are not quite so um commercially interesting but hopefully one day will be um
0: okay so tell me a story tell me about one of the countries early countries that you've worked in and please get geeky about drones and things like that i mean don't be sort of all high level i want nuts and bolts
1: nuts and bolts of these things um let me see look i think probably they're all i won't i can't pick a favorite because they're all so interesting each time they do well, them give and me i think an
0: example a geeky example of one, and then talk, we'll talk about benefits in another or something. Yeah, like
1: Yeah, so let me talk perhaps about TCI mostly, because which is the Turks and Caicos Islands. Um, mostly because I think that one, just for me, uh, they've it, watching the change it's made uh, already inside their island. Given that we only flew that in January, is probably the one that that I just kind of you, it's where you can really properly see you've had impact somewhere that that's helping um make things happen so if i take the tci they hadn't had any sort of uh aerial photography flown like this in more than a decade uh they're an island that is subject to huge hurricane impact on an annual basis um so the damage that occurs across their islands the um, risk to their population is just gigantic um You've got, obviously, it's a coastal space, so you've got coastline issues as well around sea level rise and sea level erosion, um, sea erosion in different parts of it as well. Um, But the head of the mapping agency there has also been trying to fight for funding to be able to put things in like a cause network so they could get better positional accuracy for their surveying across the country. And it had that proposal sitting in front of their Treasury Department for two years. Um, unable to really convince them (laughs) that these were things and it wasn't the only project he had there was multiple there trying to say look we we can't plan properly we can't we don't really understand the extent to where our population is we don't really understand the extent of the damage to our roads that we're trying to fix um this is a nightmare for us and yet still couldn't um, push that, that forwards in, in, in getting them to explain. He did manage to get them to agree to allow place to come in. Um, because for him, he was like, wow, this, this can solve my problems. Like I yeah. can get this data, you know, I can't get funding to do anything else, but I could get hold of this data. Um, and there's straight for you to be able to do that. Um, so he got the permission for us to come in and I know that, you know, so we have, uh, the latest drone we use is a a VTOL drone from Element 84. Um, So it's a fixed wing um, thing that, that, you know, goes straight up rather than having to be launched, um, which is a lot of reasons. And and we've gone through quite a few drones. So if you want me to be sort of geeky here, not all drones are created equal, (laughs) you know, and there's a huge difference between like the backyard drone that takes really pretty pictures uh, and a drone that is stable enough to get highly accurate precision pictures that really allow you to do survey grade work inside a country. So there's a big difference between those things. There's a lot of variables you need yeah. to manage from like a, how stable it is going in and out. Um, there's a lot of rules and laws in different countries too about how far out of sight uh, yep. uh, it can go or not. So you have to be able to to have CAA and cert, um, FAA certified uh operators knowing what they're doing and setting flight plans and you have to be able to you know if you would be technical um to really do this work you have to have no notams which go to the aviation authority as well and they have to approve that to know that your your bird's going to be up there collecting and at what height you can do that and what height you can fly impacts the level of resolution of the image that you can get. So right. that's that's all really important. So if you want to go to 20 centimeter, you actually have to get higher. Um, so it's easy, in some respects it's easier to be lower and collect, you know, the five centimeter, but then your data set is huge. Right. Um, so all of those things become an incredible variable um, with all of that.
0: And these things are like this is like a small aeroplane yeah. with vertical takeoff and landing. It's not, it's not one of those little sort of helicopter, frisbee. No, sort of it's
1: not a quadcopter type frisbee. thing.
0: <laughs> frisbee type things. No,
1: no, no. This really looks like a plane, um, you know, it's, and it's lovely and red. So our very first one's even got, ours has got a name too. So our first, we've got two called Aurora and Artemis are our two two drones. <laughs> yeah, it's-, it's very much part of our family, our drones. We love them dearly. Um, what's really quite amazing though, and I think this has been a real game changer for us, is that um, a lot of those really you know, these sorts of fixed wing VTOL type drones have actually been very big, so hard to ship around the world to really do a lot of this work. Uh, And credit to Element 84 with the the work that they've done because the way um, Artemis and Aurora work is that you can actually take them to pieces a bit and then they have a really solid uh, Pelican case type arrangement that they fit into, which means that we can actually ship them on planes um, to be able to go. But great fun things like, But then to have the batteries that you need, they're too big for being allowed to take on commercial aircraft. Um, So you have to be able to... We then had a design done where you could basically clip the batteries. The batteries got broken into pieces and they're almost like press studs where you have them all separated and you can transport them separately because they're not a single battery. Um, But then you can connect them all together Mm in order to... So these, I mean, they are all kind of like mad logistics things and fun. (laughs) Geekery of trying to say how you do this on a, a big-scale basis kind of thing.
0: Excuse my geographic ignorance here, Denise. How big is Turks and Caicos?
1: Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And I can't remember <laughs> now. I'm going to have to go back and do the double-check. I know that the team were down there for about three weeks okay. um, doing,
0: doing the fly. That's for, the, the, the answer. Motionless. That's what I was looking for.
1: And that was aerial and street view? Street street view of the... This, the, all the major roads uh, and, and a good portion of the the back roads um, at, at that stage too. Um, the other thing is that Turks and Caicos is multiple islands as well. So it's not just one island. So there's always the fun of getting in between. Um, the other thing that is, you know, one of those technical geekery things is the glory of the weather. So, you know, there is definitely weather that is not the ones you want to go up with. So the time of year makes a very big difference. Um, as to, to when to go go down and, and do that sort of work um, so but yeah so we we went down um, we did the fly we did the um, the capture of the street view as well which predominantly by a vehicle with um so we have a mosaic 360 degree mosaic camera that sits in a impressively foldable structure <laughs> that you sort of clip together in the top of the vehicle um, for a lot of for a lot of that um, capturing all the data and everything and it was in the hands of the government two days after we finished um, to be able to to do that and the the great story we had was that the um, head of mapping agency walked into the treasury person and said so we've just done this and was able to pan around and show the images and use those images as a means to explain why the cause network was going to be able to help with better precision to capture information around property boundaries and underpinning evaluations, evaluations, et cetera, within the country. And he got the approval for the network done on the spot after showing the imagery.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) So in terms of immediate benefits, within a week of you finishing the project, he'd got funding from his own government for... For what he needed to, to show, do. For yeah, sure, yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think that's that's that example of, you know, that old phrase of the picture speaks a thousand words. Yeah, you know, you can yeah. write about a place. Um, you can write a lot of words about a place. You write lots of numbers about a place. But there is something very different about creating a picture um, that accurately reflects somewhere where you're able to immediately zoom around and show where the cruise ship liner comes in and the, you know how big it is versus the dock that it's docking against, yeah. where the, um, the shops are, where the damage you can see visibly from the air is from the most recent hurricane that hasn't been yet addressed, where you've got interesting informal settlements that you hadn't realised <laughs> were in particular yeah. areas. Um, yeah. <laughs> So you're
0: six, that was the beginning of the year. So we're sort of six months or so in from completing that project. And what are they doing with the data now?
1: So um, they've been doing a mixture of different things. Uh, They've now got their digital elevation model. So they're able to better understand kind of the the state of you know, play yeah. in, in getting around the country. I know they've been doing some mobility work in looking at the mapping of the roads. Um, a really big piece has been around valuation. So it's been around improving their real estate um, and property information databases within the, the country. So very much being able to use it from a field. And that's that incredible marriage of of the area with the street. That ability to now have street views that, that can really allow you to check your data against the address you've got and what sort of business that is. Um, and being able to do that from a desk instead of having a field operator out there has meant that that's sped up that work um, in, in a huge way for, for doing validation uh, so along the all way the there. So the stuff
0: that we take for granted in, oh, yeah. in the Western world, in the sort of well-mapped countries, you know, and all of a sudden this is now starting to become available in small islands and less developed countries. That's amazing. Um, and do you know what plans they've got?
1: Um, uh, well, do you know what? It's actually funny. We've got some conversations coming up with Wainworth and, and the guys down there in, in the next little while to find out what they're doing next with it. I know that there is some modelling that they're keen to do around the coastal areas because one of the things about the imagery is sort of how clear some of the shots were that we got of the reef systems um, that are around. So I know there's some hydrographic work that they're looking at um, with it from that side of things. I know there's quite a bit of climate uh, response work that they want to start looking at. Of sort of wh- where can they go to next from a resilience and a um, adaptation style of, of work within using the data. Um, but probably the most critical is is them putting more information into their disaster management and planning. So really, kind of looking at some of the more vulnerable sections of their country and islands uh, in relation to the hurricanes and getting, getting a better handle on how to shore those up and, and protect people.
0: Okay, so where else have you been? Give me another example. I'm just getting a pattern here. I just want to check
1: it out. <laughs> uh, well, so you, you take, uh, you know, Abidjan and the team and in, in Cote d'Ivoire. So Cote d'Ivoire is the, the first country where we went back uh, and have done a following fly. Um, wow. I think the exciting thing, if I go to to Côte d'Ivoire as well, is that that's where I can really, really start to see the future of where Place will go um, in this as well, because we now also have uh, permanent staff inside the country. We have a Place Hub um inside there which is working not only with the government but with local entities as well around the use of the data so RV coffee is now um play staff working in that and he's fantastic they've got kit inside country so he's basically got a street view camera where he's just out doing lots of updates all the time um and has that kind of capability and capacity in there so um I think for me, that's the exciting bit because I think it's not just about the data; it's building an ecosystem around the use of that data as well, and realizing, recognizing too. I think that uh, government can do many, many things themselves, but there's equally great benefit when you get that fantastic public-private partnership between different entities. Too. And when you have a data source like this, it allows you to build uh, sort of a, a local national community in there as well. So for Cote d'Ivoire, I mean, again, very similar stories in terms of what their usage. So uh, flood modelling was one of the biggest uh, obviously that they wanted to start looking at in terms of the the city space. Um, difference in capabilities perhaps. So in Cote d'Ivoire, they've got staff that know how to fly drones um, as well and they do training with us in the in the collection and, and work with that too. So there's a lot of in-house capability now um, within that too. And they've got a, a lot of good in-house staff that that work with the data um, in there. But a lot of, again, transport and mobility looking across the city, uh, planning, how you might improve roads, uh, where you've got vulnerable populations in that as well so again informal settlements looking at that sort of particularly on the fringe and peri-urban parts of that for a lot of African cities as well one of the biggest issues you've got is they've predominantly have huge agricultural uh, businesses within inside their countries but as the cities grow you lose more and more and more of that um, and and what The the challenge then you get is that the food sources to feed everybody that's inside the cities get further and further and further away so the transport gets harder and harder um, to get the food from the agricultural places into the cities as well. So looking at those transport corridors um, becomes critical from a logistics perspective in how you connect the agricultural parts of the city, uh, outside of the cities, into the cities as well. But to understand the rate at which a city is growing on that peri-urban boundary and how much agriculture you're losing um, you know I remember being in Kenya last year and sort of seeing some of the statistics of the loss of coffee farms for example that, that used to be quite close to Nairobi that are now going sort of further and further and more and more of the coffee farms are, are turning into housing estates.
0: Yeah and you're also you know you're talking about cities that are growing at. A, a uh, place that we cannot imagine in You, you
1: in can't fathom it. It's, it's like imagining where I live in Winchester and it, it's basically cities growing by the size of the city I live in on a kind of, you know, two or three times a year in terms yeah. of the number of people joining. <laughs> you just sort of sit there going, you can't kind of, in your head, you think, but where do they live? Where is the buildings? Where's the facilities for them to be able to have access to that? It's, it's a scale that I think is beyond anyone's imagining.
0: How do we provide water? How do we provide schooling, hospitals, r- refuse collection? I think also I
1: think- it's all of that. I think it's also though that for a lot of, particularly the big cities um, in in the sort of African space too, there's a lot of them now that are ripe for investment. You know, there is really great. You know, I remember going to Addis um, Ababa last year, uh, which is the my fourth visit I think in the last decade. The scale of change in that city alone has been phenomenal and, and I said to someone it's a privilege to watch a city like that change um, in that period of time because I think the childhood vision I had of what Ethiopia was like is incredibly different to what the city is now um and how you might participate in it. And the amount of more Western stores, you know, like going to the airports now and finding a Burger King and a Pizza Hut might sound like a small thing, but actually what that means is that these places in our economies where you can hire people from, you know, and with the glory of uh the way we're all connected these days, actually you can hire staff that are in a lot of these different places. So I think it's it's an incredibly big mix of what you need to know and understand now about the urban spaces. But I think for me it's as much about the help side of it, of having this data so you can help people, but I think it's equally about being able to tell a story, a lot of, of these urban landscapes as well that will hopefully perhaps change some perceptions in the other parts of the world uh, and help, say, insurance companies or investment companies or big companies that might be looking at where they might build another manufacturing hub or what have you, um, have the information that actually makes them go, okay, well, actually, I should invest. You know, this is an economy that I do want to participate in and I do want to be part of because I think that that's as equally as important, you know, these days to sort of help that economic development as it is to, to do all of the other human uh, support aspects that you need to do
0: so we're nicely back to making the world a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> so Denise you've been in this job for what about 18 months now
1: about 18 months now
0: yeah and I'm not sure are you CEO of the English thing or managing partner or what it, what's in <sighs> so the probably
1: so they're probably one and the same. In the title Inside Place, is actually, it's quite important um, in, in the way we do. And I remember when I first joined and, the, and there was this sort of title of partner and I'm like, okay, what does that mean? You know, why why that and why do we not have a CEO and, and, and what's the, the choice there? I think for us, um, number one, the team Inside Place, if you look at the bios and backgrounds, and I do recommend that because when I first joined the organisation, I sort of was a bit... I, gobsmacked really as to sort of the scale of experience uh, and talent that had come to join this this sort of project and, and initiative. Um, this, it's rich. It's really, really, really rich. There's a lot of equality here in terms of capability and experience. And so that title of partner is kind of important because it's about sort of not having a hierarchy in the organisation. It's more of sort of a recognition that we're all working together as a team across our US entity and our UK entity, and and us as an organization. Um, this is a team and a community effort to try and make all of this this work. So whilst managing the managing ones, so Peter's the managing partner in the US, and I'm the managing partner in the UK. Um, you know, there's obviously that that sort of responsibility to 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 do some leadership slides in that. Um, but I think the the culture that we try and foster is one that is 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 much more of a team-oriented aspect rather than a hierarchical one in, in that. So the title's more about that. Um, but it's been a change. It is the first time, you know, Stephen, as you would know, I've boldly declared that I was not going to take CEO roles and things like that at various so points. So this
0: is exactly what I was going <laughs> to ask you, you know. After 20-plus <laughs> years in senior roles but not leading roles in geospatial you're now the managing partner of the place trust um so just for a minute let's just finish by reflecting on that denise you know um what have the challenges been of changing into that level of responsibility for you
1: um you know i think as, as you might expect, you know, one of the biggest things is always realising that the buck is going to stop with you um, in, in that. So the the sort of expectation when you're reporting to a board uh, becomes very real um, in that moment. I think for me personally, too, it's that realisation of the responsibility that you have for the people you're working with uh, as well. So this is as much about, you know, a sustainable Financially sustainable organisation, but equally our culture and how we work, and shaping that, and making sure that we're um, we're operating at our at our best. But that equally, I think that everybody in the organisation has that capability to operate at their best as well within that. Um, look, I think you know, as I said, you know, as you and I know well, I, I have made statements boldly over the course of the last ten years of not taking. <laughs> <laughs> on these sorts of roles. And I think a lot of that was probably waiting until I had an organization where taking that leadership role was going to allow me to have as much impact um, in what I was doing as any of the other roles in the organization. I think often being the second um, second tier in the organization I always felt allowed me to have better uh, direct impact. Uh, in In the areas that I wanted to have impact in, and so that's why I tended to to prefer those as my success metric uh, because that's always been a big part, I guess of what I what I want to be able to do. I want to have roles that allow me to have positive impact. Um, but what this one gave me was the chance to build something that has never been built before um and to really particularly from the place trust side of it build something that was trying to fundamentally fix some huge challenges and i don't mean that from just a human challenge perspective but like our business challenges and the constant you know we still talk about data sharing issues we still talk about data access issues we've been talking about that for 30 years um but this gave me a chance to lead, if you like, the the build of an organization that was actually really trying to change the system. Um, and I realized kind of, I guess, when this was put in front of me as an opportunity, that in order to be that change agent, I needed to be the person that was, that was leading that um, and was in the ability to make those choices and decisions. So, that's kind of how I ended up <laughs> saying yes when Peter put the idea in front of me
0: (laughs) I'm delighted that you did say yes because if ever there was a mission-driven opportunity it is this one you know and I can't think of anybody better than you to be leading this so wrapping up and we've gone on way longer than we should have done but it doesn't matter because it's been so much fun um who if If you're an organisation, how do you make contact and how do you get involved with PLACE?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: This isn't for individuals, I'm guessing.
1: No, it's really not for individuals. And I'm happy to explain to anybody rather than eating more time um, why that's the case. Um so it is definitely for organisations. Um there is a you can apply to us so there's details on our website. Um place obviously if you search in Google for the word place that's always hard to find an <laughs> <laughs> organisation. Um but if you if you google this is place all as one word uh on that you will find our website uh at that point which is thisisplace.org in there. Um so go have a look at the website. I will actually say that in a couple of weeks' time, there will be a new website and some refinements, actually, Stephen, to that mission and and some of those wordings and things that are in there. Um, but it's an application process. So any organisation, as I said, in good standing, um, for those that, that are sort of still wondering what the, the benefit is, you know, this is really designed for any organisation that needs access to high-res aerial photography. You might be one that's looking at population. You might be looking at improving your machine learning models. Uh, we know a lot of our members are in there trying to fix their feature detection uh, and, you know, and expand the, the amount of data that they can get access to to be able to make that better. Um, but essentially it's a application, um, and we'll, we'll have a look at the application. It's very, very simple really to start with. And mostly it's about checking you as an organization and background, um, and you having a look at our membership agreement, uh, which we didn't get into huge amount of detail, but is very much underpinned uh, by the Locust Charter. So if you are not familiar with that, do go and have a look at the Locust Charters 10 Principles uh, because that's really the, the backdrop that we assess all usage against. Uh, so the expectation is that you can go ahead and make your billions uh, on, on value added products and and um, uh, and derived works. And I think you know the simplicity that we have one of the things, you know, you mentioned earlier about the complexity of licensing, Stephen. Places goal is always to be as simple as possible. So our license is actually very, very simple. And essentially it's a, once you've paid your commercial fee, any derived work or evaluated product is yours off, off you go, go and make your money on it kind of thing. And we wanted to keep that, that simple.
0: Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw out an ask to, all of our listeners because there might be somebody listening there who's thinking that they want to join the place organization or their organization does. So there might also be an organization out there that would like to sponsor me to go out with your one of your teams the next time you're mapping some Caribbean island or somewhere in Africa, I would like me to go out for a week and record an interview and put together a podcast in country about the whole place process. And if anybody wants to sponsor me to do that, I'm sure Denise and I can make it happen. Okay, so that was my little one hundred percent,
1: one hundred percent.
0: I just was thinking I would love to go and see this actually happening on the ground and get to talk to the people in country and everything. It would be fantastic. Denise, as always, it's been a pleasure. You bailed me out. This is episode 199. Denise McKenzie, you've been a star. I think Place is a marvellous organisation, and I wish you the best of luck with it. And We'll get you back in about a year's time to have a progress update. Sounds
1: good. Sounds good. Excellent. Thank you, Stephen. Okay.
0: Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the Geomob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you at a Geomob event soon.